0: For Every Day is Earth Day today, we are talking with a professor from the University of Minnesota. He is in the Soil, Water, and Climate Research Department. He is a glaciologist and a climate scientist working to develop glacier ice core records of past climate, environmental conditions, and atmospheric chemistry. His name is Dr. Peter Neff. Good morning, Dr. Neff. Good morning. So you are studying... Ice. So we got ice cubes in our refrigerator, but now you're studying very old ice. Tell us why old ice matters to people living outside of Antarctica, because that's where you are, correct?
1: Yes, I am currently at McMurdo Station, Antarctica, the largest U.S. research station in Antarctica, the largest research station period in Antarctica. Um, And yeah, we come down here to study Antarctic ice, this giant ice cube that's down here, because it, it very cleanly preserves samples of the atmosphere from the past, like a million or two million years ago, the past. So if we can collect ice here and bring it back to our labs in the States, we can extract these tiny air bubbles that are direct samples of the atmosphere in the past, including things like carbon dioxide and methane. These really important heat-trapping gases that allow us to learn more about how the Earth system operates and think about climate change and the warming that's uh, that we're experiencing now.
0: Now, you are a part of what's called, it's COLDEX, C-O-L-D-E-X, and it says you're the director for field research and data for COLDEX. Now, what is COLDEX?
1: Yeah, COLDEX, the Center for Oldest Ice Exploration, is a relatively new science and technology center that's funded by the National Science Foundation, and we are a team of about 15 different institutions across the country, mostly universities, but also the American Meteorological Society and some other groups. And our goal is to identify locations where we can sample ice that is up to several million years old, and the sort of highest ideal that we have, hopefully in the next five years, we can locate a site where we will be able to drill about a mile and a half deep into the Antarctic ice sheet and recover 1.5 million years of climate history from today continuously all the way back to 1.5 million years ago, and that would double our current perspective on climate from Antarctic ice cores, which, importantly, are our only records on Earth that give us direct measurements of carbon dioxide going back that amount of time. So it's a really complex thing to to do to identify a location like that. We have to be able to see into a mile and a half of ice deep in the middle of nowhere in Antarctica, flying out of South Pole Station. So we have the next few years to work on that, and, and we have great experts from all across the various disciplines of glaciology and geophysics and all of those things that we need to be able to learn more about these sites that we want to um, extract this old information from.
0: It blows my mind that you can go back millions of years and go look into this ice. So currently, are you getting core samples and how far down are you able to go?
1: Yeah, so we have uh, a site that we're working at this year uh, at a location called the Allen Hills which is just an hour flight from McMurdo Station here. So we're directly south of New Zealand for for perspective. So we we fly here with the Air Force from New Zealand, and then we fly on smaller planes from McMurdo Station out to to this field site. And Allen Hills is a special place where rather than having to drill through 1.5 million years of annual layers of snow to get to that information a mile and a half deep in the ice sheet, Allen Hills is sort of a a stagnant little part on the edge of the ice sheet where very old ice actually older than a million and a half years it's been dated up to 2.7 million years old so we can get snapshots we don't get that whole continuous time from today back 2.7 million years but we get the first snapshots of of cleanly preserved air from that time uh, in these sort of places where old ice gets stranded and and actually flows right up to the surface so we don't even have to drill more than a couple hundred feet deep, and we're getting into ice that's five hundred thousand years old. You actually stand on the surface out there, and it's almost it's almost half a million years old.
0: How mm-hmm. deep is the layer that? I mean, how, you mentioned going a mile and a half down. How deep is that ice layer total? Do you, do you have any ideas?
1: Uh, where the that one point five million years would be is is probably one point five miles deep, where we would have that in, in a sort of vertical stratigraphic stack. We would call it. But Allen Hills, it, it, the glacier actually does us a huge favor and brings it right up to the surface. We have to do a little bit more work to date how old that ice is. We use some some geochemistry to do that. We can't just count annual layers or, you know, look at the whole stack of ice. But it's still, uh, they've been shown to be really, really direct preserved samples of, of air from the past.
0: So what exactly are you looking at? I mean, I'm trying to picture a bunch of ice in a, I assume it's, Drilled. I mean describe the process so we kind of understand how you do it in the first place and what you're looking at.
1: Yeah. So I guess what we're doing right now is a combination of we're drilling ice core samples, which we don't we don't learn a lot from when we're down here in Antarctica. We have to get them back home because all of the information we get from Antarctic ice cores is chemical information. So we have to melt down the, the ice and we can measure any little element, any bit of chemistry that's in that water. We can use that to learn about the past environment, and then as we melt the ice, the air bubbles come out of it, and we have a very clean um, way of sampling that that old air. So here in Antarctica, drilling ice cores is is sort of a a much more of sort of an engineering operation. You're just out there collecting cores or shipping them back, so flying them back here to McMurdo Station where we have a freezer that we put them into before they go on us refrigerated shipping container on a vessel all the way back to California and eventually to to Denver, Colorado, where we have a national ice core facility that the National Science Foundation supports.
0: How do you transport ice? I mean, it just seems, obviously, you got this frozen stuff and it can't thaw or you'll have issues. So how do you make sure that it's pristine and doesn't lose any of the qualities that you might be searching for.
1: Yeah, the cold chain, as we call it, uh, that we have in, in the U.S. Antarctic program is is one of the best on the planet, I would say. So we have folks here in Science Cargo that, that send out insulated boxes for us to put the ice cores in. So we put them in there and each insulated box has a temperature logger inside of it. And we actually try to keep the cores below minus 20 degrees Celsius at all times so that none of the gases that are preserved in the ice start to change. So we have a a strict process of checking all of those temperature loggers all along the way. The shipping container, we have doubly redundant refrigerated uh, freezer containers that go on the vessel. So there's an annual resupply of McMurdo Station that comes in by ship. The Coast Guard opens a path in the sea ice, so the the, uh, U.S. Coast Guard's heavy icebreaker, Polar Star, is on its way here right now. And somebody actually will hop on the vessel and go along with the shipping containers all the way back to California, and just in case anything happens with their uh, the ship power or any of the uh, the freezer units. And all of our cargo with the Antarctic program, including ice, goes back to Port Wainimi in California and then the ice is put on <laughs> freezer trucks and driven to Denver, Colorado. And our science cargo folks actually rent a car and they drive with that ice, with those trucks, all the way to Colorado to the final destination, which is the NSF ice core facility, which is a minus 36 degree deep freezer that has miles and miles and miles of ice that we've drilled on national research projects. Actually, the oldest, the, the earliest drilled ice core there was drilled in 1968, and there are still pieces of it frozen in the freezer.
0: Wow. What have you actually discovered so far? Have there been things that have come out of some of these ice cores that you've looked at?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, ColdEx is a new project, and we're we're Sort of continuing the research that a lot of great folks have been doing. So the, the team that we have collecting cores right now is, is led by Princeton University and our science leader there, John Higgins, has worked, uh, him, him and, and graduate students are the ones who have found the current oldest clean ice core samples, these 2.7 million year old samples that get us back to, to a time, so 2.7 million years ago, it would have been Warmer than today, uh, the ice ages were slightly different than today. They happened more frequently, and they were smaller in, in their magnitude. Right. So you think of the last ice age, twenty thousand years ago, and, and Minnesota has an ice sheet on top of it, much much like the Antarctic ice sheet. And so we we're able to see the relationship between greenhouse gases preserved in that old ice and the temperature um, that that ice tells us it was at that time. We have chemical ways to estimate the temperature at the same time. Um, And so that allows us to to keep track of sort of the most important relationship in the Earth system is is the relationship between greenhouse gases and temperature. How much will Earth's temperature rise if the amount of greenhouse gases that trap heat in the atmosphere rise? And so we have, from other ice cores in Antarctica, we have 800,000 years of perspective on that relationship between CO2 and temperature, particularly. CO2 is the most important greenhouse gas because it stays in the atmosphere for a long time. And so that shows us that greenhouse gases and temperature are in lockstep over the last 800,000 years. And what we're trying to do with Coldex is double that time perspective. So not only 800,000 years, but 1.5 million years. That gets us back to some, some changes in the Earth system and in the pacing of ice ages and possibly to where there were some changes in, in the fundamental sensitivity of Earth's climate to greenhouse gas concentration. So it's sort of checking on the fundamental, like, engine of, of the, the climate system, this temperature and, and CO2. And we want to make sure that we understand that relationship in as many circumstances as possible because we're entering this new, we are in this new era of rapidly rising CO2 and other greenhouse gases, and we're watching the entire Earth system warm up in response to it. We want to make sure that we have the best understanding of how much warming is coming, and this old ice does actually help us
0: with that. So when you look back at this old ice, were there times, other times in the periods that where there was a lot of warm-up as well, or is this pretty much a new phenomenon?
1: Yeah. In the 800,000-year in the record, um, there's nothing that comes close to the amount of increase in greenhouse gases that we have, that we have caused over the industrial period, and there's nothing that matches the, the rate of speed at which we've increased greenhouse gases. So that's really the, the sort of shocking thing, and when you look at the data and you put our modern observations of CO2 in the atmosphere on on the same chart as ice core records. So for the last 800,000 years, we've had uh, an ice age every 100,000 years, and the CO2 levels were always between about 200 parts per million and 300 parts per million. So warm period would be 300 parts per million. And that's what greenhouse gases were for the last 10,000 years during this warm period um, that our current civilization has, has come to be during during that period. So we were at 300 parts per million for the last 10,000 years. So always between 200 and 300. And in the last 150 years, we've gone from about 300 parts per million to now 420 parts per million and growing by a couple parts per million every year. So it's just this massive shift to a, a much more greenhouse gas in the atmosphere that is causing the, the warming that's being observed worldwide.
0: What do you hope that this research will translate to in terms of dealing with the warming trends. Is there, or is it just a matter of just finding out what it is, or is there something it can actually be practical for folks to say? Okay, this is what we can do to help.
1: I think what our research will contribute is is um, just firming up our understanding of uh, the sensitivity of of Earth, of, of the planet, to the increase increased greenhouse gases. So. We already have a pretty good understanding of that. Like, If you double the amount of greenhouse, uh, the, double the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, you're going to warm Earth on average about between 2 to 3 degrees Celsius. And so we can, we can provide more confidence in that number so that our projections going forward are as accurate as possible. You know, we're not necessarily going to, to find new information that's going to provide new evidence that we need to get a handle on this. That's already well-established. So the only thing that our research would do is to demonstrate even more clearly how much warming we're committed to if we don't decarbonize our energy systems. So it's, you know, it's this massive, inconvenient problem to have to shift so much of of what we do. I mean, and and to be fully transparent, right, our operations here in Antarctica are are completely dependent on fossil fuels right now. And that's not sustainable down here either. We're sort of on the edge of of civilization. And so we, we haven't, aren't leading the way in, in transitioning to green energy down here. But worldwide, that is the reality that, that all of our work fits into as well. We're we're just sort of learning even more because we know this old information is preserved in the ice sheet. We'd be remiss if we didn't go and check to make sure that our understanding of how the Earth's uh, climate system works. We, we want to make sure that we check and have all of the possible information that we could need, but that won't change the fact that The warming that is coming from our greenhouse gas emissions is is very serious, and we need to get a handle on it as soon as possible. Otherwise, the consequences will just get worse and worse.
0: Why are you studying the South Pole, Antarctica, versus the North Pole? Yeah,
1: Greenland is much closer to home. It'd be very convenient (laughs) if we could do all of this in Greenland. And we get great air support from the New York Air National Guard. They have the only squadron of ski-equipped C-130 aircraft, these large turboprop planes, uh, that really help us get around here. The unfortunate thing about Greenland is that the the oldest ice there, although it's still about two miles thick, the oldest ice in Greenland is only about uh, 100 to 150,000 years old. Oh. Hmm. Um, and that just has to do with the temperature of the ice and whether or not you can preserve that really old ice very deep in the ice sheet without it being melted away. The other additional challenge with ice in the Northern Hemisphere is that because there's so much land area in the Northern Hemisphere, there's a lot more dust, and that dust gets oh. locked up in the ice as well, and actually causes chemical reactions that alter the carbon dioxide concentration in the ice. So we can actually reconstruct methane from Greenland ice cores quite well. It's not affected by that dust, uh, but we have to go to Antarctica to study past carbon dioxide because Antarctica is in the southern hemisphere. There's much less land area in the southern hemisphere, and so the at- the atmosphere here is oh, something like 20 times less dusty than the Northern Hemisphere. I mean, that really, really helps us preserve CO2 without it being altered. That's sort of the, the fundamental reason. And and then also the age of the ice here in Antarctica is, is much, much greater because it's so much colder. You can lock up uh, that old ice deep in the ice sheet, and it, it doesn't melt away at the bottom because it's, it's so cold here.
0: Is that dust you talk about part of what we're doing to the planet in terms of pollution, or is it just a natural phenomena there? It's mostly
1: just natural. There have been some increases in in dust in the atmosphere due to how we uh, have been, uh, you know, through our land use, changing dust emissions. But for the most part, that's a background thing. It's just just so happens that most of the continents are in the northern hemisphere.
0: When you say you're going back 2.7 million years, how far are you away from doing that? I mean, do you have the equipment and everything you need to actually reach that depth?
1: Yeah, that's the great thing about this site, the Allen Hills, I can't recall the exact depth where that oldest ice was found, but it's, it's no more than 200 meters deep, and that's something that we can do with relatively simple drilling equipment. And we can cleanly access it. Just we just have a it's like a, a mechanical drill, just like you would if you needed to drill a hole for a doorknob. We do that same thing. We just do it with ice. Uh, you know, a hundred times going down deep, we drill one meter at a time. And so through the work of uh, a great colleague who's out there at Allen Hills right now, Eugene Yan, Yan, he has identified where that old ice is. And so we can go back and get more and more and more of that old ice so that all of our colleagues who have their particular measurements and want to learn their particular thing about the atmosphere at that time, that's an archive that we know where it is and it's easily accessible. So um, that's the great thing about these shallow sites, that we can go to them and immediately get these old ice samples rather than having to work over the next five years to find this ultimate goal of a continuous record that has every year from today going back a million and a half years.
0: Dr. Neff, this is a question about you. How does one become interested in being a glaciologist? You know, were you you a kid? You like snow? You're from Minnesota? Or I mean, I'm just curious how one even knows that that's a, a job at some point.
1: Yeah, I, I got very lucky and I am relatively new to Minnesota, moved over to the University of Minnesota in, in 2020. So I grew up in Washington State. Uh, we we have lots of snow around. There's always a volcano, a glacier covered volcano in the distance where I grew up. But it was more just being in the right place at the right time. I, I went to my state school, University of Washington, and that's where a lot of our our glaciology uh, is in in the West. It's a center of glaciology and and ice core science particularly. So I was a sophomore undergraduate and I saw a posting on the corkboard on the wall for lab work with possible field work in Greenland and Antarctica and it didn't take me long to apply for that and I've just been keeping at it ever since.
0: So were you studying geology or what course were you taking when you came across this?
1: Yeah, I was getting into geology and and I was excited about, about learning about that because I guess geology to me is about history. You're using chemistry and math and physics to learn about the history of the, of the Earth. And so it, I, I was enjoyed and still enjoy being outside and hiking and climbing in the mountains. And learning about geology sort of gives you a fourth dimension uh, when you're outside. You, you not only see a landscape, but you, you can use your skills of observation to understand how that landscape came to be. So that's sort of what we continue to do here in Antarctica, where, where we see uh, the sites in front of us and we're learning more and more about what it can tell us about about history in the past. And uh, yeah, I just found that sort of it's fundamentally beautiful. How lucky are we that each year snow falls here in Antarctica and it never melts and it's just locking up this information for us, that were it not, were the ice sheet not recording it for us, we'd be totally blind to what CO2 was like in the atmosphere in the past. So. Yeah, I mean, I feel incredibly lucky that we get to work with all of these experts in logistics and all of the people that come together in the the U.S. Antarctic program to allow us to get out to where we need to go to drill these samples and bring them back home so that we can learn what Antarctica has been recording for us.
0: Here's another question. Are you aware of Will Steger? Oh, yes. He's the guy who, you know, takes the sled dogs across the Arctic. And I was just curious, we've talked with him on this show, and he's talking about life, on, you know, with the sled dogs, what is life like there down in Antarctica as a researcher? Where do you live? I mean, it's cold. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, it can it can really vary. So I'm currently uh, at McMurdo Station, which is a station of, of about a thousand people in the summertime. So we have buildings. I'm right now in the Prairie Science and Engineering Center. So we have offices and, you know, McMurdo is sort of a cobbling together of, of 50, 60, 70 buildings. that has been built up since the, the 1940s. So here it's storm style living, eating in a communal galley, there are little spots to, to hang out and, and socialize with folks. There's a you know, an old military Quonset hut that has a, a gym in it and yeah. um it's it's quite comfortable and, and really well supported. And so then our, our team of ice core folks and there's a, a radar a team that's driving radar instruments to look into the ice using using radio technology, they are out sleeping in, in Scott tents, the same tents that the early explorers used, these, this sort of bulletproof design. It's minus 20 to minus 25 out and, <laughs> and often blowing very strong wind. That's one of the reasons why there's old ice at Allen Hills, is that it, it's so windy that it blows away all of the surface snow and you're standing on pure blue glacial ice. They have larger tents where they, they cook in and, and spend their communal time, and it really is like a, a family. So I started this season first week of November coming down with that ice coring team of of eight people who are out in this camp right now and it it took us a month to even get out to the field site so you become this little family unit by then and and you get all of your your little family in jokes and the things you like (laughs) to do so we really like to do crossword puzzles and you know the conditions are, are very spartan but groups tend to be a really strong family, and that I think is one of my favorite things about working in Antarctica, is that the, the research station as well, here in McMurdo, it sort of feels like the big city, but everybody's working together towards this common goal of achieving these science objectives and, and making sure that Antarctica remains this this last preserve of, of science and peace. It's really a, a fascinating international international structure in Antarctica that, that allows us to, to continue prioritizing science above everything else.
0: So have you stayed in those tents as well? That's what I was picturing, that you're out there getting the ice cores as well.
1: Yeah, I'm lucky this season as the <laughs> director for this project now to, to I, I go out and help them set up their camp, and I'll go back and help them take it down. But we have three different projects running simultaneously this year. So one of the things with Coldex is that we're using a lot of geophysical survey. Tools to look into the ice and look through one and a half or two miles of ice to the bedrock below to try to find this perfect site for an old ice core. So I'm currently working with our airborne science team. We have an aircraft, a rebuilt DC-3 turboprop plane that has radar and gravity and magnetic instruments on it so that we can fly to South Pole Station. And then we'll be flying a grid deep into inland Antarctica from South Pole Station for the month of January just surveying the ice and trying to find likely places that we can hone in on that are, are have the right characteristics to preserve this old ice. So I get to enjoy the comfort of McMurdo Station, and then South Pole Station is also very comfortable. But I mean, this is my fifth season, so fifth time coming to Antarctica. And every previous time we would go spend eight, nine, ten weeks living in tents and not showering and <laughs> uh, living very simple lives. So this is a different season for me, for sure.
0: Yeah, I read that you first went to Antarctica in late 2009, so it's, you mentioned going there five times, and that was when you were a student. So back at that time, were you one of the ice core handlers that actually, the reason you stayed out in those tents?
1: That's exactly right, yeah. I was, for the first time, an ice core handler on on our sort of biggest U.S. ice core project, a place called Waste Divide, which is a big hub of research still, Uh, and that's where we drilled a, a a two-mile-deep ice core, the second deepest ice core ever drilled. It was 3,400 meters and relatively young. It was only about 70,000 years old at the bottom, so it ended up being one of our highest resolution records of the last 70,000 years. I think probably the highest resolution record over that time that we'll ever have. Wow. Um, So that was, yeah, a formative experience, you know, seeing the biggest, most complicated drilling operation. We drilled that season from, I think, something like 1,500 meters deep to 2,500 meters deep, so you're production drilling around the clock and it's hard work we I think actually for that project we were working in a large refrigerated core processing area where we kept it at minus 28 degrees Celsius Oof. inside oh, we brought freezers to the middle of Antarctica to, just <laughs> to make sure that the ice never warmed up above minus 20 degrees so we yeah we go to great lengths to uh, to keep the samples happy
0: So you don't mind living in Minnesota then because it's probably warm <laughs> comparatively Yeah <laughs>
1: The only wild thing about Minnesota to me, so I, having grown up on the West Coast where it doesn't get as cold in the winter, you know it makes sense to me to have to live in small tents in you know minus thirty degrees it I, you know, now, as a homeowner in in St <laughs> Paul, I'm like this is sort of crazy to try to keep a house heated at minus fifteen minus twenty in the winter. I mean I, I have much respect to to Minnesotans <laughs> they're definitely a hearty bunch
0: oh for sure. And I was going to ask you about how people can kind of keep track of what you're doing because you've been on social media before, haven't you? In the ColdEx project, so how can we follow what you're doing, Peter?
1: Yeah, so ColdEx definitely. Uh, you can always you can just look up ColdEx.org um, to learn about the project, and yeah, I share widely on social media. Uh, my my handle ended up as icypete, <laughs> icy underscore pete. I share a lot on on Twitter, Instagram, and uh, TikTok. Actually, was one of my pandemic projects. They reached out to me to try to get more more educational content on there. So I've I've enjoyed sharing on on TikTok, and we've done a little bit live from Antarctica this year for the first time. We have a, a Starlink internet system that, that we've work, been working with SpaceX to to get that extra bandwidth out here. We we often don't have that great of a connection, especially when we're in field camps. And this year, our field camp. Actually, has some of the best internet uh, on the entire continent. So it's been an interesting experiment, and and not one that everybody is excited about. One of the one of the great <laughs> things about Antarctica is you come down here and you just focus on your work. You can't call home every day, uh, and that's that's starting to change with with better and better internet connections.
0: I also saw that you uh, the the team is going to be do maybe doing some FaceTiming from your ice core camp. In between binging <laughs> Netflix shows, it says. So, Facetiming—you'll be doing that with your students or who? We
1: we were joking about this, but oh, yeah, okay. that with, with Starlink <laughs> connectivity, we we have essentially no restrictions on okay. on our connectivity out there. So we were able to Facetime home with with family members and didn't have it incorporated into our planning. So it's often difficult to schedule live interviews from out there everybody's working really hard and and the work is often weather dependent so you can't just say at a certain time you're going to be meeting with folks but I'd, I'd like to think that next year we might incorporate that a little bit more intentionally and so we're we're still experimenting with having that extra connection and and it's something that you know there's a sense of loss actually of of the isolation and you know people out there in that small camp might get a little bit offended if somebody wants to to be online rather than do crossword puzzles with them you know that's <laughs> it's an inter- interesting dynamic that we're actually studying as part of Coldex so so as a science and technology center we one pillar of of the work that we do is is called knowledge transfer and so my my colleague Heidi Roop who's also at the University of Minnesota leads knowledge transfer efforts and so we have a PhD student who's who's studying the impact of of this new connectivity and and we are trying to study how we all work together as an as a multidisciplinary interdisciplinary center and how our our sort of collaboration networks are going to evolve through the time of the center and, and also study how we communicate publicly with, with folks like you and your listeners.
0: That's fascinating information. How long are you out there? Till three months or so?
1: Yep, our core months are November to, to January. So we have another month of sort of work in the field, and then we would need to start the work of getting everything back to station and back in the cargo systems to get it back home. So, yeah, through the through the holidays, we'll be working away. That's always the challenge of, of the timing here, the summertime. We're a, away from families during yeah. the holiday season, and it is nice to be able to be a little bit more connected this year.
0: Well, I want to thank you so much for your time. I know you guys are really busy up there. You are with the University of Minnesota Soil, Water, and Climate Assistant Research Professor, Dr. Peter Neff, who we've been talking with, a glaciologist and climate scientist working to develop Glacier Ice Core Records of Past Climates. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a delight, and i love to check out your progress on the Coldex website.
1: Great. Thanks so much, Karen.
0: Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union.